Uh, did I say killer dolphins? I meant killer Italians. Gray, bottle-nosed, intelligent Italians. Intelligent Italians? Something's wrong. It's dolphins. We have to stop them. If we speak in low-frequency voices, I don't think they can... Ow! Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the fa to my pa, my co-host, Nate Story. How are you feeling today, buddy? Fa loves pa! I thought you were going to say podcast, but that, that oh, works too. Oh, that would have been good. Well, I'm not that clever. <laughs> yeah, well, this week, <laughs> neither is this movie. This week, we watched Mike Nichols. Yes, believe it or not, not Mike Nichols made this movie. Uh, Mike Nichols, The Day of the Dolphin from 1973, which makes this year the 50th anniversary because this film was released December 19th, 1973. Uh, so, you know, it's the, what is that golden? Does that make it the golden anniversary? What's 50? Uh, I don't know. Sure. Five, five is paper. I think, uh, <laughs> let's see here. I think uh, one is paper, isn't golden, it? I, you might be right. Golden anniversary. Yeah. 50. Yeah. 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 So the golden Gold. anniversary of day of the dolphin, you might remember it from such Simpson episodes as season 12's Treehouse of horror 11. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the Simpsons episode. Cause I got more to <laughs> You're say gonna about delay that, this I as think. long uh, as possible. <laughs> I'm going to, this might be a real short episode, folks. This might be our <laughs> we'll shortest see. episode to date. Uh, yeah. Treehouse of horror 11, uh, season 12, episode one air date, November 1st, 2000. This is one of those rare. It aired after Halloween, but it's mm-hmm. also one of the ones that I think I actually do remember watching live like as it aired directed by matthew nastic and the day of the dolphin parody segment the third segment was written by carolyn omine who later became the show's first female executive producer starting in season 17 so um nate do you want to sort of describe the parody yeah so the third segment of this episode is called the night of the dolphin which obviously the title is a parody of this movie, and also, like, there are so many movies that are the day of this or the night of that, but they do specifically call out the day of the dolphin connection. The whole sort of segment is about dolphins sort of taking over Springfield and, like, getting their revenge on the stupid humans. And there is another sort of moment in this where there's, like, a more direct parody of this movie which is when Snorky is about to Snorky the dolphin is about to give his speech to all the Springfieldians and gets up to the podium and and basically does what I just did when you asked how I was doing. He's yeah. sort of like yeah. speaking in broken English with like a very high pitched voice, and then he's like, <clears throat> "Oh, excuse me, Snorky, talk, man." <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let me start over. Eons ago, dolphins lived on the land. <gasps> What did he say? He said dolphins used to live on the land. Wow! And then he sounds like Harry Shearer. Right. (laughs) In fact, I was reading, like, the trivia for the episode, and it literally just says, like, Snorky's speaking voice is just Harry Shearer's regular voice. (laughs) Right, right. I love that, because they wanted, I think, the the dolphin to sound, like, as normal as possible, basically. Like, that's the gag. Totally, yeah. It doesn't have a funny voice. It has the least funny voice probably in the room. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I love this episode. Or, well, I, let's, that's not true. I love this segment. Oh, see, because I, I actually... Sorry, are you saying you don't love the rest of the episode? I, I think the second segment, Scary Tales Can Come True, which is sort of like a mashup of different um, fables. Like Grimm's Fairy Tales. Yeah, Grimm's Fairy yeah. Tales. I like that one. I think that one's really funny. Ghost Dad, or go, 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 Ghost Dad, um, I, I'm not as fond of as much. But Oh, see, that's funny because I really enjoyed go, 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 Ghost Dad. Okay. Uh, I thought it had, like, some of my favorite lines. It has the sequence where Homer dies because he ate broccoli. Right. Uh, and Dr. Hibbert has the line of, Marge is like, she says something to the effect of like, but I thought broccoli was... Oh, yes, one of the deadliest plants on Earth. Why, it tries to warn you itself with its terrible taste. <laughs> Which I constantly quote to Morgan because I hate broccoli. Oh, you're missing So out. I always I will make that reference of it tries to warn you with its terrible taste. Uh, and I, of course, as we've discussed many times, my Simpson references are lost on my family. But yeah, I, I remember watching this and I remember thinking it was kind of funny. I found the second segment like that's the one that doesn't do it as much for me. Like I, oh, I was like, oh, it's fine. Like it just feels like the, you know, parodying fairy tales is kind a little of easy done to death. So it's yeah, exactly. It's, I do like their sort of take on it of like trying to make all of them very realistic, though, of like what would happen if you actually tried to climb a woman's hair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Or when the three bears decide to eat Goldilocks. And yeah, right, there's some, right. there are some funny gags. And in Bart it, but... pouring the cold porridge into the warm porridge to make it just right. Yeah. yeah all those little details. I, I like that one. All right. But the, the third segment, which we're going to talk about, is hilarious and like has so many funny, quotable moments in it especially for these later seasons. I think it's it's really one of those classic segments for me. Well, not to mention, it is also like chock-a-block full of movie parodies. Like not yeah. just Day of the Dolphin, but I mean, you've got Free Willy, mm -hmm. like a very direct visual gag that I think they did in another episode, although I might be confusing it with no, the they critic. Did. But the same moment... I think they're watching a, a director's cut or something like that. On yes, TV. it's the director's cut and Willie falls on the kid and yeah, yeah, kills exactly. him. And then obviously there's multiple references to Jaws. Mm -hmm. The I think you mm -hmm. didn't have this listed, so I don't know if this is in the database, but I think there's a Sleepy Hollow reference because oh. I actually went and checked and like this episode came out after Sleepy Hollow. So when okay. Willie is giving his speech in the town hall... And then gets impaled by one of the dolphins. <laughs> yeah. Is very similar to the scene at the near the end of Sleepy Hollow where Michael Gambon is at the church giving the speech and it comes through the glass and oh. impales him while he's giving the speech. So again, like it's, very it's not necessarily a parody. You know, having someone impaled through glass while giving a speech is not necessarily like original to Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> right. But I do wonder if it could possibly be related. Incidentally, Sleepy Hollow, fantastic movie. It is fan. underrated. Uh, highly underrated. Watch the new 4K this spooktober. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it looks fantastic. I just you and I have mutually bonded over that movie in the past. Yeah, it's another but, one of those 90s things of like we didn't know how good we had it. And we were just like, oh, yeah, totally. you know, whatever. It's another Tim Burton movie. It looks like a Tim Burton movie. I don't know. And then you rewatch it and you're like, oh, this is actually like really like fun and clever and stylish and everything. Well, it's funny because and we sort of offline we've discussed this and I'm fine to keep talking about this because I don't <laughs> want to talk about this movie. I seem to really like the Tim Burton movies that are like Tim Burton as gun for hire, like movies right. that he didn't sort of like birth and develop but movies he just sort of comes on to yeah because like some of my favorites are like well i love batman 89 and like sleepy hollow 
And I do love Edward Scissorhands, um, but Ed Wood, like the movies that don't mm-hmm. feel super Tim Burton-y are mm-hmm. always my favorite. And Sleepy Hollow is like, yes, OK, the tree is looks like a Tim Burton construction, but everything else about it is actually like kind of not Tim Burton-y. Like it's just yep. and it's shot by Chivo, like Emmanuel Lebesky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it like looks gorgeous it's got like one of those killer danny elfman scores and it's the funniest gag about it is that it was at a period where and i know this is kind of hard to remember especially now like post everything with johnny depp and like his sort of what his status is now but the idea of like johnny depp as a heartthrob um but kind of a nerdy heartthrob was like kind of new and novel like this was the movie that sort of introduced adult johnny depp as a heartthrob and people were like really isn't he that weird guy who played like edward scissorhands and yeah or he was like young in like in like what's eating gilbert grape or like those kinds of yeah like those early when he was a little kid he was like a kid heartthrob and then Mm -hmm. he went and made like a bunch of weird ass movies and then this was sort of the movie that reintroduces him kind of as a sex symbol but also this like super weird like he, you know Ichabod is supposed to be like kind of repulsive at the same time so it's just yeah. this weird casting moment of like in context you're sort of like what I don't understand how this happens but anyway I fascinating movie highly recommend but we should probably stop talking about it now <laughs> the, the other movie that is obviously very heavily referenced is Hitchcock's The Birds right. which the Simpsons have parodied before but the scene when they leave the town hall And then it's all the shots of the dolphins waiting for them as a clear, direct reference to that scene from The Birds. Have you ever seen The Birds? So I don't think I have ever seen it in full. I've seen the famous scenes. But it's one of those movies where I'm like, what the hell is the plot of this movie? (laughs) Every time I think about it, I'm like, is there more to it than the scenes I've already seen? Or is it is it just? Yeah, no, not really. Yeah, that's kind of my thought, right? Yeah, it's a really weird one because I remember, so when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock sure. when I was about probably like 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, me Rented too. like basically all of his movies. Like that was, I would say Hitchcock was the filmmaker that turned me into a cinephile. Like yep. up until that point, like I liked movies, but I didn't really think of them in, in terms of like their artistic merit or whatever. And Hitchcock was like, it was the sort of the first director that I guess I yeah, kind of yeah. knew by name and then started. Baby's first auteur. Yeah, and it and was my gateway drug into like being like, oh, there's th- this role called a director. Yep. And then they have a vision, and then they have a style, and then they have a filmography, and I want to rent movies by a director versus I want to rent movies from a series or right. with an actor or anything like that. It was like so Hitchcock was like my entry point, and I'm sure for a lot of young cinephiles, like. He is the entry point because it's like everybody yeah, he's maybe. generally considered to be. Well, I don't know about nowadays because nowadays you've got people like yeah. Tarantino and like. Yeah. But for there our was a moment in the nineties like, where that could certainly be your entry point because you have like Hitchcock Presents, right? Which was an entry point yep. for me was like we watched that on TV, right? And so that's how I knew originally how or who Alfred Hitchcock was, and then eventually saw the movies as well. So like there was a moment where he was sort of like in the zeitgeist. I feel like when we were growing up. But then you do also have folks like Tim Burton who are also like yeah, early oh, of entry points for a lot of people. Of course. But I think with Hitchcock, it's also because like he was sort of the to call him like the Quentin Tarantino of our parents generation is maybe not wholly <laughs> accurate. But it was like, OK, in only in the sense that he was like a household name. I think Alfred right. Hitchcock was 
one of the first household name directors that, again, had this idea of like, oh, there's a new Hitchcock movie out. I'm going to go see that because I know what I'm going to get. Yep. And if I like that, then... I'm going to like the new one. And so totally. all this is to say, I, I was obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock. I would go to Blockbuster every weekend and I'd probably rent an Alfred Hitchcock movie and probably a, the next James Bond movie I hadn't yet seen. And so I sort of worked my way through his filmography. And The Birds was one of those ones where I was just like, as a kid, I, I was like, this is really f-ing stupid. Like, I don't. It's not scary. It's not believable. Like, yeah. what what is this? You know, I loved Rear Window. I think I thought Vertigo was kind of weird, but like recognized that it was weird and different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, loved Psycho. Sure. Uh, North by Northwest was exciting, but like the birds was just like, this is dumb. Like, yeah, it's what, just what the a, hell is a bunch of birds are attacking a, a small town. Like, okay, it yeah. doesn't seem that scary. And, and and I'm sure there have been moments where, you know, if a flock of, of pigeons sort of like flock of seagulls fly up at you at the same time like you you get a little startled but like i'm never that <laughs> terrified so yeah so it references the birds <laughs> yeah yeah so when you listen to the commentary carolyn omine talks about the sort of genesis of the idea for this segment and it starts with the birds right, right. because basically they're like okay so what's the cutest nicest animal you could do this story with basically and they landed on dolphins but then once okay. you do that, I feel like the connection to Day of the Dolphin is kind of inevitable, right? You can't avoid it because, like, there aren't that. <laughs> Adam's like, okay. uh, you absolutely could. <laughs> I mean, I see what you're saying in the sense of, like, well, yeah, you can't not reference it. Kind of like if you're doing a boxing movie, you have to reference Rocky and, right. and Raging Bull. But that assumes that you would know that Day of the Dolphin exists, which I cannot fathom that anybody would fucking know whoa, this movie. Again. Whoa, whoa, this whoa. movie does not but, exist, Nate. But Adam, this movie I, does yes, not exist. Yes, but think about when it came out. Right, comes out in what 1973, and it's yeah. directed by Mike Nichols and stars George. I, I C. understand Scott. that. <laughs> so, so I'm, I, all look, I'm saying I, is it doesn't I, exist now. But when it came out, it was a thing that you might be looking forward to even after it gets like bad buzz. There must've been some segment of people that saw this. And the thing I said to you was like, go into this movie expecting that it is a yeah, movie for yeah. young boys. Yeah. And yeah, you did, um, you did say that. That doesn't help your, no, your no, it did not it. help at all. Nathan, but, but, <laughs> but, but I do think, all. so look, I love animal movies. <clears throat> and when I was a kid, I loved okay. animal movies. And I think, okay, if I saw this movie at the right age as a kid, I actually might have liked it. I'm not necessarily <laughs> the hottest on this movie either, but there is something about the way it treats the sort of animal human relationships that gets me. But I'm also a sucker for yeah. that. And so yeah. I do think that, like, look, if you were a kid in the 1970s and your parents probably liked Mike Nichols movies, you might have you might have <laughs> gone and see this movie and been like, oh, awesome. Dolphins. You know, there's like some kind of crazy action plot that is like not that complicated. Like you don't need to understand politics at all to understand what's going on. It's like the bad guys stole the dolphins. They're going to do something bad (laughs) with it. Right. Like, so I feel like if you're at that age when this comes out, you might have gotten into the theater and you might have been like, yeah, cool, whatever. That was like a movie that I saw. There were dolphins. I liked it. You know what I mean? That's kind of my my take on this movie. So maybe there were some writers that saw this movie 
and just remembered it from that perspective, considering the age of the writers in the Simpsons writers room. To me, it feels like the deepest of deep cuts. We sort of joked about, you know, when we did Paint Your Wagon for years, we had no idea that Paint Your Wagon was a real thing. And we've sort of been saying like, oh, this is a fun thing. We should do this every season of like pick a movie that we're like, oh, we thought this was just a Simpsons joke. Turns out it's an actual real ass movie. Yeah. So when you had said, oh, we should do Day of the Dolphin, I was like, what what the hell is Day of the Dolphin? And I was like <laughs> looking it up. And again, I was like, Mike Nichols, Buck Henry. Oh, OK. Like and not what I was expecting based no. on those two creatives being involved. No. But yeah, OK, well, uh, fair enough. So before we really dig into this, if you can call it a film film, I do want to call it one of my favorite lines. It's in the first segment uh-huh. when Homer comes back to Marge. He's like, I need to do a good deed to get into heaven. And she starts saying, well, I've got a whole list of chores you can do. And she starts rhyming them off. He says, I'm just trying to get in, not running for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's a good and that one. made me laugh out loud. And I think this was also in their run of like, for whatever reason, like Lenny was the punchline for a lot of things. Right. Like there's a lot of buzz around Lenny. And right. <laughs> um, w- when Homer's going to bowl a perfect game right. and he lies and he says, I don't remember what the lie was, but something to do with Lenny. And then like Marge hangs up the phone and is like, kids, I have some bad news about Lenny. And they're like, not Lenny. <laughs> right, right, like, right. For whatever reason, the Simpson writers thought that Lenny was a really funny button to a joke. And they were right. He is. I love Lenny. <laughs> yeah, I, he's one of my favorite side characters. So I love any any reference to Lenny. And of course, unfortunately, wait, 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 what, what the was the reference to Lenny in this episode? Oh, that that Homer says you're going to be a uh, like an attractive co-worker will hit on you or something. And he's like, oh, I hope, oh, it's, I hope Lenny. it's Lenny. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, in the third segment, unfor- Lenny goes for a little night swim and yeah. has the great line of mm, alcohol and night swimming. It's a winning combination. A winning combination. And then <laughs> yeah. uh, he gets m- murdered by dolphins. Yes. No, I, I think there's so many good lines in this segment. Wiggum, when he's looking at the body and he's like, hmm, bottlenose bruises, blowhole burns, flipper prints. This looks like the work of rowdy teens. Lou, cancel the prom. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Kent yep. Brockman's anti-Italian sentiments. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think they were kind of on a run of that of like, you know, who can we make fun of? Uh, the Irish, the Irish and, and the, the Italians. Italians. Yeah. OK, that seems. Yeah. Safe. Quimby, when he starts the the town meeting, going, please, please, we're all frightened and horny. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great one. I like that one. And then there was one, too, that definitely reminded me of your love of radio play humor. When uh, (laughs) when Bart just sees the dolphin come in and goes, he's approaching the podium. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Solid guy. We needed that narrated. It's a great episode. I mean, we've talked at length on multiple episodes now about how I normally am not fond of treehouse of horror episodes which maybe i'm wrong in saying that i don't like them because now re-watching them like i have been enjoying them so much and maybe part of that is because i normally skip them so they feel a bit fresher and i've forgotten some of the gags and some of the jokes right but this is a great episode you know everybody sort of says golden period ends around season 10 mm-hmm. whereas i kind of always maintained it was around season 12 or season 13 and uh this is like one of those episodes that i'd point to as like see this is a great classic yeah. Late period, well, late, in our, in our air quotes, because yeah, it's of in things. our terms, late period, right. not in the sense that the show is now 35 seasons deep. Yes, but, it's three times um, as long as what we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so late period. But yeah, no, a, a great episode all around, much better than the movie. Uh, so with that, thanks for listening to the episode, and we'll see hey, you next hey, week. Hey, 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 hey.
I have things to say about this movie, at least. Maybe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, then, on that note, Nate, how would you sum this movie up in a sentence? That's actually a tall order, I have to say. Because, like, what the hell this movie is about is kind of hard. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's true. Really? I think you it's know? pretty easy. Okay. Okay. The problem is now, too, there's a tagline for this movie that basically sums up the plot, and now it's just stuck in my head. Um, so okay, I, well, that's fair. So I'm going to try to talk around it here, but okay. Um, a scientist tries to... Played by George C. Scott. Played by George C. Scott. Tries to teach dolphins how to speak English and has them <laughs> stolen by uh-huh. an evil foundation that wants to kill Terrorists. the president? Yep. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah, no, nothing is well explained. Uh, nothing really makes any sense. It feels like a bunch of the connective tissue that explains anything that's going on was edited out, and what was left was just like not even exposition, but just like moments. But at the same time, I feel like th- if this was like a 22 minute episode of like The Twilight Zone or like a similar show, totally, it would work really, really well. Totally. Yet, somehow at only an hour and 46 minutes this movie feels an hour and 46 minutes too long yeah no that's i'm not gonna gonna lie to you nate i fell asleep watching this i definitely struggled to keep attention i have to admit Um, i was so profoundly bored not even the great george c scott could hold my attention I, i don't so my feeling about it is that i think it would play better in theaters i actually watched this movie twice (laughs) because because i the 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 other thing about this movie is there's like nothing about it out there no it doesn't exist there's there's not this movie does not exist and so and so i i bought the blu-ray yeah Yeah. nate bought the blu-ray i did not buy the blu-ray and the movie does not exist in canada on any streaming or digital platforms period wow like i I could not rent this movie i could not stream that nate bought the blu-ray but it was on sale on amazon.com for like what it was like 15 bucks or something Yeah, it was not bad up here in in canada it was like 45 dollars and i was like i have not seen this movie i know it's not worth whatever the asking price is yeah fair enough so i did not pay to watch this movie whatever yeah for for the sake of this episode i bought this movie in order to watch the very spare (laughs) special features on the dvd (laughs) or on the on the blu-ray and the reason i watched it twice is because there is a commentary by no one who was involved with the film by two (laughs) film historians which was helpful i liked it better the second time and i do think it would be a lot better if you saw it in theaters it would just be easier to keep your attention because it's kind of just a slow yeah. vibes movie, right? It's not very... It's pl- slow. It's not very plotty. It is very slow. I no. actually think, like, some of the cinematography is really beautiful. I think they do a great yeah. job of... Okay, we're, like, getting way ahead here, but I love the way they deal with the dolphins. My, yeah. the, my no, the dolphins are the, are arguably the best performances in the film. Um, but, <laughs> oh, George is going to yeah. be mad with you. Okay, okay yeah, before okay. we get there, before we get there. <laughs> Had you ever heard of this movie at all no, before? No, this? of course I haven't heard of this no. fucking movie because okay. it's it's absolutely it's Nathan. I cannot believe this movie exists. It's so incredibly stupid, and <laughs> that's fine. There are stupid movies like we watched a movie in high school called Stuff Stephanie into the Incinerator. Like oh, yeah. this is yeah, this is of that caliber. This feels mm-hmm. like a direct to VHS nineteen eighties like D level movie. And what is absolutely 
gobsmacking about it is that it stars George C. Scott. Yeah. And not in a period when George C. Scott was, like, unbankable. No, like, not at all. He, had, not at he all. was a legitimate movie star. Yep. It also features a very, very young Paul Sorvino, mm-hmm. who, like, granted, like, this is probably before he was the Paul Sorvino. Yeah. But it is written by Buck Henry, yeah. the co-creator of Get Smart and the Academy Award-winning author of The Graduate. Yep. And directed by Hollywood legend Mike Nichols. Yeah. Yep. And it is... I think I can maybe explain some things as we go along about why I hope so, because I do like and and granted, if your frame of reference for this movie is, okay, you've got Buck Henry and Mike Nichols, you might think, oh, it's going to be a comedy. It's not at all. (laughs) If this movie were, I would probably really enjoy it. Sure. But that's not what it is. It is a straight up thriller. Yeah. Without any thrills, but it is technically a thriller. Yeah. I texted you last night and I said, this is the the equivalent of an underwater level from Super Mario Brothers because it is painfully slow and I wish it didn't exist. Yeah. Fun fact on that, I mean, two things. Night of the Dolphin is a level in the Simpsons video game, number one. Okay, there you go. And number two, there's a connection between this movie and the video game Echo the Dolphin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Echo the Dolphin. Yeah, so there's a connection there. I'll get there. It's too hard to explain right now. Uh, What I will also say is I just, I do not like underwater. Well, no, I shouldn't say I don't like all under, like, because The Abyss is a decent movie, but, like, Thunderball. The the James Bond movie, Thunderball. You underwater movies as a specific thing? Well, because this is the thing. So, Thunderball is, like, starts my hatred of these kind of movies. Because what happens is underwater cinematography becomes feasible right and then they're like okay we're gonna put a ton of underwater shit in this movie and people are gonna lose their minds yeah but like trying setting an action set piece underwater you move slow as molasses yes you can't see the actors faces because they're covered in like garb that movie could be a 90 minute james bond movie but it ends up being a two and a half hour movie because (laughs) there's all these underwater (laughs) sequence yeah they move so slowly (laughs) that movie fucking blows yeah yeah and like ironically they remake it again we're going on a tangent but i do not care because i have nothing to say about (laughs) day of the dolphin they remake Thunderball as never say never again in the yes. 1980s because yes. of this like there's the whole the legal weird issue and yeah. so like it's this weird legal loophole where Sean Connery comes back to play James Bond right. in an unauthorized James Bond remake yep. and that movie slaps it's actually really good it's directed by Lawrence Kirshner or no sorry Irving Kirshner who directed Empire Strikes Back it's bananas but like there's also this like kind of interesting element of like sean connery is clearly like in his 60s yeah and so they kind of play up this idea of like james bond is kind of too old to be doing this Mm -hmm. and anyway i think that movie's a fascinating object and there's a fan edit that takes the movie takes out all the shitty music edits in john barry bond scores from like old bond movies and puts the gun barrel back in and essentially like says Let's pretend that this is an officially licensed sure. James Bond movie. What would that f- look and feel like? Yeah. And if you watch that version of it, it's great. Highly okay. recommended. So Much better the- than Day of the Dolphin. <laughs> so but- what's the connection? <laughs> Where are uh, we going? That, oh, oh, the connection is that they don't do 60 minutes of underwater cinematography. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, okay. That, and and that's, that's fair. There is a that's bit of a fad around about, that. And I feel like this movie kind of suffers from it because there are multiple scenes where I'm like, you're just showing George C. Scott <sighs> but- like... But the thing riding is, a dolphin. No, no, but the thing that I disagree with you on about this is that 
in the James Bond movie, they're action set pieces that they're trying to do underwater where they're trying to right. build tension. And I think that that okay. is totally the wrong way to use it. I think this has more in common with Avatar Way of Water in terms of what they're trying to do with the water scenes. Another movie I didn't like. I uh, See, I liked that. But I think the thing is that it's more in the vein, I think we've talked about this before, in King Kong, it's more in the vein of mm. trying to kind of give a mood and a sense of the world and all of that rather than move the plot forward or have an action set piece. Right. I feel like that's what they're okay. trying to do in this movie with the underwater footage, which I think is a better use of that technique or that setting, I guess, than I, I totally agree on the action set pieces. They never work for me. Action or horror underwater is just like, it's inert. Except, except, except. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen a little movie called Jaws? Because like is that, that underwater though? But, oh, okay, well, the thrills don't necessarily happen mm. underwater, but See? all the tension is built they're underwater. But they're cutting back and forth. That's the key. It's the diving yeah. shit that doesn't work. Yeah. When the people yeah. are okay, underwater, well, it doesn't work. If the people are on the okay. surface and the thing is underneath, that works. Like uh, the Dolphin here's Lenny the worked perfectly. Here's the crazy thing is that watching this, I know, and like we haven't really dug into like any of the stuff that we were normally, <laughs> but I just, I got to get this out of the way. I'm watching this and I the opening titles come up and I'm like, oh, I actually like these are kind of cool opening titles. And like it's setting yeah. the mood, it's setting the tone and it kind of feels like, ooh, like are the dolphins going to be dangerous? And I'm like, did this come like this feels like derivative of Jaws, though? Like, when did this come out mm. relative to Jaws? This came out before Jaws. It sure did. Jaws doesn't exist yet. Well, I, I'll Which get is there. wild. I have I have some context. OK, for you. but before we get yeah, let's I, we've gotten let's so far up. ahead of let's back up. Okay, okay, okay. Nate, take me back to the beginning. Okay, plot synopsis. Plot synopsis. (laughs) Plot synopsis. Okay. So I found a couple different sources. And I do think it's important because this movie is unknown. I think most people have no idea what the hell this movie is. The old original poster for this movie actually has a pretty good tagline that describes the plot. And it simply says... Unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. That's a good fucking tagline. It's a pretty good tagline because like you're that. like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Also, I just love any tagline that begins with unwittingly, comma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he didn't mean to do this, but... Right, right. The other thing I found, though, is from the original press book. And I don't think I'm going to read all of this, but just to give you a little taste of... Oh, wow. This... Yeah, this is several paragraphs. Yeah, long. yeah, yeah. So, but just to give you a taste of what this feels like. Jack Terrell, played by George C. Scott, is a marine biologist whose center for the study of Cetaceans, that genus of mammals to which dolphins, porpoises, and whales belong, is based on a small island off the coast of Florida. Jake and his wife, Maggie, Trish Vanderveer, assisted by a quintet of young graduate students, live and work in a complex of ocean tanks, concrete pools, and indoor (laughs) laboratories specially constructed for the care and the investigation into the behavior of dolphins. For four years, Terrell has concentrated his efforts on an experiment with one of the animals, a dolphin named Alpha, (laughs) with whom he has built a relationship that goes far beyond that of master and pet. It just goes on like this. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. That is more true to what this movie feels like when you're watching it. I think part of the problem with this movie is the marketing of it is that it doesn't know who it's for and the way it was marketed was very much as a thriller for adults but it's not really complex enough for adults 
No. And most of the runtime is not dedicated to it being a thriller at all. If anything, I what I would say is this is an animal movie with thriller elements. It's more right. like Lassie or Flipper than it is like The Day of the Jackal, for example. Even though that also has like, you know, a presidential assassination, this like barely explains why anyone would even want to kill the president or like what the hell is going on. It's not really that interested in that. It's interested in the relationship between George C. Scott and his dolphins. And, but, yeah, but it's like, how really. the hell do you sell that? And who do you sell that to? That's the problem, you know? But like, I do wonder if part of the problem is the Mike Nichols of it all. Like, yeah, I had to pull up his filmography because like to me, when I think of Mike Nichols, I think of The Graduate. Sure. And I think of The Birdcage, both mm-hmm. of which are, I would say, straight comedies like they're out and out comedies. I vividly remember the first time I saw The Graduate because I remember then going and talking to Mr. Douglas, our high school film teacher about it and being like, I did not know comedies could do this. Mm. Like I've sort of talked about how like The Graduate and the films of Woody Allen completely changed my view of how you can make a comedy film because up until then my idea of comedy movies was like you set the camera up you let the jokes happen there's no sort of like cinematic or filmic artistry on display like the joke is the thing camera work and all that it's just a means to an end to get to the joke but the graduate was the first film where i was like this is doing like interesting things with editing and like storytelling and it's dark, but that's sort of like what I think of him as. But then I'm looking through his sort of filmography. His debut film is who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is not a comedy and famously parodied on the Simpsons, queen of the harpies, queen of the harpies, queen of the harpies, (laughs) and then catch 22, which again is kind of in that like mash zone of like, it's an absurdist sort of black comedy, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, and, like, he directed Silkwood, which is yeah. famous. Um, also not streaming anywhere. Okay. So I saw that back in high school, I think. But it's written by Nora Ephron. Famously has this incredible performance from Meryl Streep and shares in it and is based on a true story. Kind of like a conspiracy. Conspiracy movie is not, like, the right term, but it's sort of in that, like... Aaron Brockovich uh, zone. Know, don't trust. Yeah, like, a kind of an All the President's Men sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. like, But not, again, not a comedy. So in terms of, like, the guy's body of work, even though he starts out Nichols and May, like, full-on, you know, comedic duo, like, his film and, I guess, theater career, like, he basically does everything. Like, this is a guy who is capable of doing everything. But that being said, I don't know that thriller is necessarily in his wheelhouse as much as, like dramas comedy and drama kind of go hand in hand in a weird way because they're like opposite sides of the coin like yeah. you know the, i mean famously the two masks right but thriller is a very specific type of genre and you have to be able to like draw your audience in and know how to balance all of these elements to like keep audiences on the edge of their seat and i just i don't know maybe if this was directed by alfred hitchcock or you know alan j pakula maybe it yeah. would have been more enjoyable but then there's the buck henry of it all yeah, but again, mean, Buck, Buck Henry, Henry is just like I actually, he's a I actually think I think Buck Henry actually might be some of the problem with this too. Um, yeah, you know, again, like all due respect, he's written many wonderful things, but I don't think this was his wheelhouse either. So again, let's back up. Let, let's talk a little bit about like where the hell this movie comes from, and then we can talk a bit more about the crew. So this movie is an adaptation. 
Uh, it's an adap- which is bananas. <laughs> yeah, it's an adaptation of a French book. Ah, the French. Ah, the French. By a guy named Robert Mer- Robert Merle or Robert Merle, I guess, called Un Animal Doué de Raison, which means an animal gifted with reason or with okay. sentience. And it came out in 1967. The interesting thing about the book is that it is a satire, and mm. in the book, the dolphins can actually speak real english they can oh, actually not like this speak. sort of like broken yeah they speak full sentences in this interview with buck henry on the blu-ray he was saying that in the book during a press conference with the dolphins they actually talk oh about the god. existence of god and the attractiveness of sophia loren <laughs> so just to give you a sense of like okay. how different the tone is right um so the tone is simpsons episode yeah, and it's, the movie it's, is not. <laughs> it's a little... I mean, again, it's like the book is a lot longer than this movie is. It's messy. The conspiracy is more complicated. And so right. I think it's really writing almost more like a Dr. Strangelove sort of vibe where it's both mm-hmm. funny and very ominous. This movie never gets to either of those places. It's not funny. Sure doesn't. And it's not <laughs> scary either. Again, the tone of it is like Lassie. It's more about the animal-human yeah. thing. So originally this adaptation was going to be directed by roman polanski however which is wild i didn't do a lot of research but i did there are a couple pieces of trivia that i did come across and this piece of trivia is just wild yeah totally so just quickly on roman polanski very very problematic person tremendously tremendously problematic person and also i think that the tone of his movies is closer to the tone of the book like absolutely his movies managed to be both funny and terrifying he probably could have struck that balance for this movie uh but absolutely the the reason he can't direct it is because his wife sharon tate is murdered by the manson family and so he drops out basically so and then the thing that ruins his career happens shortly thereafter so yes yes well, yeah, the, the, the thing that uh, he is deserving. He d- the thing um, that he does, the act yes. that he commits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's not be passive. Clear. Yeah. Um, no, we are not giving old Roman a pass here. No. So then it passes on to a friend of ours, Franklin J. Schaffner. Do you recognize the name? Who, our friend from Planet of the Apes. That's right. Yeah. Which, again, I'm like, okay, I mean, I can kind of see... The connection here, what they're thinking with that, Franklin J. Schaffner. It's like, Mm -hmm. there is a Planet of the Apes sort of vibe to this. There's a world where this movie is more of a Planet of the Apes tone, too. Yeah. Right? Because that was a Twilight Zone thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Planet of the Apes was what, 72? Yes, I think it definitely came out before this, but it's around the same time. Uh, Oh, it's 68. Okay. 68. Sorry. So, yeah, but, but, you know, like within the last five years, right? Yeah. I didn't have a lot of love for Planet of the Apes, but I could see that yeah. that making sense. Like that, that's a filmmaker of, that like sci-fi with a little bit of humor, yeah. and then that like existential dread is like, yeah, that's that's the tone of the book, from what I can tell. I haven't read the book, but like it, it's got a little bit more of that. So what ends up happening is after passing <laughs> through those two people, they both end up turning it down. Mike Nichols is in a bit of a bind. <laughs> so mm. basically he had a deal with joe levine a producer to do three okay. movies and he did mm. the graduate he did carnal yep. knowledge with them and then he okay. needed a third movie and he couldn't move on until he finished this third movie 
So, ah. so he proposes to good old Joe that they should do uh, Der Rosenkavalier, which is a German comedic opera. And he's joking um, <laughs> just to try to like be like, don't worry about it. They'll kill it. And then I'll, I can just right. move on. And Joe says, yes. <laughs> oh god he calls so, his bluff yeah exactly he calls his bluff so mike nichols panics and is like looking around and finds the day of the dolphin and mm. decides to do that so he takes it to buck henry and buck henry right immediately is like mike are you are you sure you want to do this <laughs> <laughs> so, so even buck henry's like this is a bad idea this movie shouldn't be made it's not gonna exist in 40 years I, basically it seems like he was not sure and mike nichol says yes i do think i have to do this and so buck oh, henry God. takes a crack at, at adapting the script and again like this is where i think this movie starts to go wrong is that like he strips all of the satire out of it which is mm. so weird given but yeah. the other things that buck henry has written yeah maybe it's just maybe yeah. satire is not his brand of humor and that's the sticking point but he was basically like look there are two things about this book that like audiences are not going to accept on screen and the first one is that the dolphins speak like you know the queen's english that's just not gonna fly you can't have because then it is like the simpsons no. where it's just sherry Shearer's voice coming out of a dolphin it's funny it's hard to accept i mean what they end up doing is hard to accept but like he was like no it, it needs to sound more like an animal and be more limited because it's just too crazy and then the other thing is that the conspiracy in the book is different the dolphins are basically used by the u.s government to cause world war three by blowing up a chinese aircraft carrier but but okay, again it's so like it's, James, that, it's, it's literally a bond villain plot it, it's kind of a bond villain plot but it's also kind of dr strange love right it's like yeah. bringing together the sort of like geopolitical satire of like talking dolphins which are patently ridiculous and nuclear war and they strip all of that out of this. It, it ends up being this very personal sort of story that just happens to have some like weird conspiracy thriller elements to it. But but at the same time, like the movie just doesn't know what it wants to be. Yes, and it doesn't really seem to care. Yeah. And like, OK, so they speak English kind of like broken English, which is being used to blackmail character. But like. The, the bad guy's plot is they're going to get the dolphins to wear mines to then blow up a ship that the president's on. Yeah. None of which requires the dolphins to be able to speak English. So the idea is right. just that they're so intelligent that they can speak English that they can then be trained to act as bomb. Like, like the, the fact that they speak English is completely irrelevant to the plot. Like, it's right. just this. So therefore... None of this makes any goddamn sense. And, well, I know. And I think the thing is, again, the book is messy. And I think when you have like a whatever it is, like a 300 page book, I feel like you can gloss over stuff like that because there's so many details. And with a movie, it's mm -hmm. a lot harder to do that because there are fewer details. There are fewer scenes that are just like character development, you know, like having conversations about the bigger themes and that kind of stuff. Like that doesn't there's well, less room also, for that. It's, so it's, you have to get those details right. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, ironically, too, it's also, I think, it sort of, in a weird way, ties back to our musical theater conversations and, and suspension of disbelief and how yeah. the idea of, like, when you're seeing a musical on stage, you're, all, you're you're suspending your disbelief to the point of, like, this isn't really happening in 
Oklahoma. I'm in right. a theater in New York. I have to pretend. And therefore, when people break out into song, it's like, well, I'm already pretending this is fine. So it's like when you're reading a book, you're suspending your own disbelief because you're sort of painting a picture in your mind. And so when yeah. dolphins start speaking the Queen's English, you're like, OK, whatever. I'm not. This is fine. But then when you are in a film and you have to actually see real dolphins start speaking the Queen's English, you'd go, right. well, this is batshit. This makes no sense. Yeah, this is insane. Some things just only work in their original form and they don't adapt or translate well to other mediums. And this seems like a perfect example of that. Like, I just, again, having not read the book, but knowing what you're telling me, it's just not going to work. There's no way to make well, that work. See, I think, I don't think that's true because it it depends on the tone. And if you make this movie funny, then it works. Well... <laughs> Okay, fair, right? fair. Yes, because you're then, right. Because then if, it if just you becomes make this more of absurd. Yeah, and and I think that that is more the intent of the book. The Simpsons episode works. Like right? it's not. That's I'm what not I'm saying. I'm not really scared by it, but it's entertaining. It's at least entertaining. Which this movie was not <laughs> entertaining. It, this is this is one of those movies where yeah. it's like it's not even yeah. so bad. It's I, good. Yeah. Like it's just bad. <laughs> like I'm sorry, Nate, and yeah. I'm sorry to our audiences because I think this is the worst movie we've subjected ourselves to. I wow. like at least wow. worse than paint your wagon for you. Yes, because paint your wagon was bad, but like a, it at least had the musical numbers to sort of like break up the badness. And B, there was sure. the novelty of like, I can't believe this exists. This is such a s ridiculous concept. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you said, like at least the production design in that movie is good. There's a couple songs that work like this has yeah. nothing. Marvin. There's like, there's like one shot that I think is actually when they reveal Paul Sorvino's like, I don't even I, again, I by this point, I had completely checked out in terms of the plot. So I don't even know who the guy was. But there's the reveal of they like walk into the room and the light turns on the, in the tank and the guy is drowned. Like, yeah. that's a cool shot and a good reveal. There's a lot of great 1960s, 1970s era technology, including a bank of about 15 to 20 reel to reel tape recorders, which. I've loved because I love real tape recorders. Yeah. yeah. So that, there's even that's almost good. like a set piece around that of him like playing. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Although it doesn't really make sense that he would like just leave them playing and like do they do they I, stop I know. perfectly at the like logic of it makes no sense. Um, and dolphins are adorable. The, the, like I said, that the, the dolphins give the best performance in the film. Like no disrespect to Mr. C. Scott, but like he's not even like chewing this like. I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, I, we, I, I, we are both fans of Exorcist 3, and George C. Scott's performance in that is bananas. And yeah. obviously, like Strange Love, his performance is bananas. But he's not even giving a bananas George C. Scott performance. He just seems like a grandpa. I it's mean, just... the, the scenes where he is talking to a dolphin as though it's a <laughs> child are pretty bananas. But he's not necessarily <laughs> selling those moments. But that's what as I mean. Well like it's could. it's yeah. everything is played so seriously and so straight that yeah. you're just like, are 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 you guys not recognizing the fact that you have George C. Scott talking to a dolphin, right? Being right. like, no man, love dolphin. Dolphin <laughs> must swim. Like it's just, oh my god, this movie, this movie, it's so bad. Okay, okay, all right, it's so bad. All right. So we've been talking about kind of how crazy it is, like who is working on this movie. The other super yeah. weird thing is that 
the crew that's working on this movie, the cinematographer, the editor, the production designer, set decorator, costume designer, they've all both worked with Nichols and with Polanski. So if Polanski had directed this movie, it would have been basically the same crew, except for him. It's a good crew. Cinematography, William A. Fraker. We know William A. Fraker. He also did, actually, uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Paint Your Wagon. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yep. So, but, and I but, will say, yeah. I, like, th- th- I, again, I, I, I've been shitting on this movie. Like, it is competently made. Like, Nichols yes, that's is, the thing. <laughs> is not, like, he's not phoning it in. No. Like not I at said, all. That, sh- that shot and that reveal of the, the bot, like, there is decent cinematography going on. It's just, like, to what end? Like, yeah. you could have fucking Roger Deakins shoot this movie and it would still be a steaming pile of poo because it doesn't work this script i should say like well that's as as written you could get the greatest cinematographer the greatest editor the greatest production designer like the best of the best and it still would not work at a fundamental level yeah and i do think think it's partly the script and the way it was adapted i think just doesn't work i also think it sounds like the shoot was an absolute mess Again, on the DVD, one of the few people that agreed to be interviewed for it is Edward Herman, (laughs) um, who is in this movie in a very, very minor role. It's like one of his earliest named roles in a film. And the thing that like probably most people know him from is Gilmore Girls. He is the grandfather on Gilmore Girls. So he's the boat driver, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's a very Okay, because when I saw him, I'm like... He looks familiar, but I couldn't place it. I, oh, because he's like a beanpole. He's like a young beanpole in this movie, and it just looks. Yeah, no, he different. looks nothing like Richard Gilmore. Yeah. does because, like, obviously he's much older and put on some weight. But okay, but now that you say that, I'm like, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, interesting. So, so, so he actually talks about the production, which is great because he was a minor role. So of course he doesn't have as much of a horse on the race, right? right. And so what he said was at the very beginning of the production. Nichols comes around to all of the actors individually, and he says, what do you think this movie is about? And they all kind of give different answers. And Herman says to him, it's about the spiritual dimension of species communicating with each other, which is actually a pretty good read, I think, on this movie. And mm-hmm. Nichols is like, yes, that's it. And and he and he like goes on about like how he loves the idea of being able to talk to a dolphin and being like, what did the creator of the universe tell you? Mm. Like uh, the ability Mm. to like talk to God through these animals or whatever. He's like all jazzed on this. And then about halfway through the film, Nichols starts questioning why he's doing the film at all. (laughs) And he goes back to Herman and Herman says, like I said, you know, it's about like talking to God through the animals. And Nichols is like, I I know, I know, but like what else? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like that how it's about cats yeah that feels right you know when you watch this movie is like it just feels like it kind of lost its way and like again people are definitely trying they're working hard on this but there's just something about it that that like you can understand why Nichols like halfway through the shoot is like what am I doing like what is this even working is this going in the right direction no no it's not sir and and then so then on top yeah. of that Herman also tells this story about like when he gets to set, their prop guy was chronically drunk 
and he's responsible for the boats. Mm. And so he takes Herman out on the boat to show him how it works. And a storm comes and they're like, oh, no, out in the middle of like, it's like getting dark. The waves are, are going up and they like just get back to shore. And the prop guy's like, oh, you know, I'd appreciate your you know discretion about this. And Herman was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I, yeah, I won't tell anyone. And then later it, it like came up again. And Nichols was like, man, you have to tell me these things if that sort of stuff happens. <laughs> like that should never happen on set. Yeah. And, but it was like that's going on. George C. Scott is basically having a midlife crisis. He had just <sighs> left his wife. For Trish Vanderveer, who is his co-star in this movie. Playing his girlfriend. Yes. Right. Oh, um, George. And one of the other actors tells a story of him, like, taking them out onto his yacht, which he brought to set. Of for, for, like, drinks. And it's like all these young actors are like, oh, you know, it's George C. Scott. They're, like, starstruck, right? Because he's famous at this point. He just did Patton. And so they're like, great, we'll, like, hear some stories. He starts telling stories about, like, his career. And he just gets drunker and angrier and they end up they end up stuck on this yacht with him as he complains about hollywood and stuff until 4 a.m so it's just like this is the tone of this set right and uh finally like afterward you know years later nichols was like telling this story of just like he he realized at some point on set that he was treating the crew really badly and he went over to william a fraker the dp and was like Hey, you know, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I feel like I haven't been treating everyone very well on set. And William A. Fraker just said, "Oh, it's too late for that." And they ne- they literally never worked together again. So, yeah, and bad vibes, bad vibes all the way around. But you know what's wild? Mm-hmm. Didn't kill his career because a movie this yeah. bad. I like today. If you were to make a movie like this, and it, and obviously we haven't talked about how the movie performed so i don't know maybe it was a box office sensation i don't i i can't fathom that but i guess anything's possible but like this should be a career killer and yet he's basically started his run like he still has some of his best work in him which i guess is commendable in the sense that like this is a time where you could up and hollywood is still gonna give you the pass to like go on to make the birdcage and angels in america and like yeah, the thing that they argue on the commentary, and I, I, I wish I could remember the name of the historians, but they were basically saying that that is true. However, this is the last movie that has his sort of distinctive filmmaking style to it, like mm. what you see in The Graduate, famously. And his later stuff becomes a little bit more like a lot of other comedies or a lot of other dramas. Like work, workman, workmanly, or whatever yeah. The you, you can't, is. Yeah. you don't see the auteur touches of the way the camera moves and that kind of thing, which I think is really interesting. I certainly see that in this movie. There are similarities in the cinematography and editing to The Graduate, weirdly. And I'm not as familiar with his filmography as you are, but like I know Closer, for example, from 2004. I think I saw that when it came out. Mm -hmm. At the time, I did not know who Mike Nichols was, and I would never have connected it to The Graduate, stylistically. It's a very... Right. D- different lo- looking and feeling movie. It's based on a play, though, right? Closer, yeah. That movie's based I on a play? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that, it's, movie's based on plays. They but always kind of like have like, the Birdcage, sort of... do you think the Birdcage feels like The Graduate? No, and uh, again, it's, I think the Birdcage is more what we would sort of consider a traditional comedy film right. in the sense that, like, 
the filmmaking is a means to get to the next joke or what have you. Right, it's, right. it's not, I mean, I, I say that I have not seen The Birdcage in like 15 years, but yeah. my memory of it is that is like the, the draw to that film is the story, the jokes and the performances and the filmmaking or the style very much takes a back seat. Yeah. Whereas The Graduate, like, it's it's everything. The Graduate is a masterpiece. There's no like there's sure. no two ways about it. That movie is a, is a stone cold masterpiece. Yeah, this is not. Um, but oh. but it's like it's interesting <laughs> okay. to think that maybe it did kill something, which is like not you know he continued to direct. But like for example, this is the last collaboration with Buck Henry, right? And his style does I think change after this. It sounds like it may have been the you know a. A change in his confidence level in his status as auteur or something like that. Yeah, that I would buy that in the sense that it, it, it does feel like they do start to become a little bit more workmanlike in the sense mm-hmm. that it's just like they're not breaking boundaries. They're not super stylistic. They're just sort of like he becomes someone you hire when you want a competently made film. And yeah. He's going to know where to put the camera and he's going to know how to get great performances out of his actors and that's that whereas again the graduate is a kind of movie that sort of makes you go oh i didn't know movies could be like this yeah Um, yeah totally so yeah that is an interesting way of looking at it all right well (laughs) should we should we dive into this movie should we talk a little bit more about the details I mean, sure. Like, I don't. I think I've said most of what I need to say. But okay, uh, okay. I'm but, sure you will. Well, let's let me let me ask you. Do you find the opening of this movie compelling? Do you remember no. the opening <laughs> of this movie? I, I well, I do remember the opening titles of like it starts on this like shape and then it gets to the dolphin's eye and then the title mm-hmm. comes up and it's in mm-hmm. a really nice typeface and then that's kind of all i remember i think my biggest problem with this movie is like i said it it really feels like the connective tissue that should explain the elements of the plot have all been cut out it's just like it's a series of scenes that are all driving toward it's like they introduce the paul sorvino thing they have like the opening section where he's talking about like he's giving a lecture and they're intercutting the lecture what are they intercutting the lecture with i can't remember this is the thing that, that was I interesting. This is the thing that I remember about the opening that I really liked is it opens with George C. Scott talking to camera, basically. Yeah. He's looking at you and he is talking about all these sort of incredible things about dolphins. Imagine that your life is spent in an environment of total physical sensation, that every one of your senses has been heightened to a level that in a human being might only be described as ecstatic you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of like the outer limits those sort of like compilation shows i guess the twilight zone didn't have this but like the some of the later ones that were sort of uh, but his other show uh what was night it? gallery oh, shit, what was it called night gallery yes night gallery. yeah night gallery would have these hosts that would kind of like introduce you to the stories right and yeah. it feels like that because he's talking right at you he's kind of in this void and he's talking about this stuff that's like scientific but kind of on the edge of our understanding and then it's being intercut with slow motion footage of dolphins basically like a dolphin is jumping out of the water and it has a ball in its mouth and then you know i thought was a really compelling opening because it's just like what am i watching like it's break it's immediately breaking the conventions of what's supposed to be happening you know it's a narrative movie but there's an actor talking to the camera and then 
that being intercut with like slow motion footage of animals is so it's just so jarring it doesn't feel yeah. like a drama or a thriller it's like what is but this? it arguably like that's one of the few instances of the film where it like mike nichols is clearly doing his thing is yeah. like there's some artistry on display and it's not workmanlike for sure uh, it's just a shame that it doesn't continue through the rest of the picture <laughs> i think there are moments but i take your point i mean the opening is probably one of the strongest parts of this movie it feels like it has mm-hmm. a really driving artistic force behind it oh and the other thing right off the bat that's fantastic is the score mm. the, the yeah, score yeah, yeah. in this movie is great it's totally stellar it's not a composer i was familiar with georges delarue but apparently that's probably because he did mostly french films so he, he worked okay. with Truffaut and Godard, which is definitely oh, a blind okay. spot for me. And then the, probably the b- best known American film he worked on was Platoon in 1986. Mm. But okay. this is just like this incredible sweeping emotional score that is definitely out of step a little bit with like how seriously <laughs> we're supposed to take this movie. But it, it's beautiful. Like I'm thinking about like going and buying the vinyl of just the score for this movie because it's so good. Right. And then we're kind of introduced to the characters, right? So we got our friend George kind Scott. Kind of. I mean, yeah, introduced is, is generous maybe, but we, we see them on the screen. So George C. Scott's playing Jake Terrell or Terrell, who is this scientist. And, and, and again, like this, this guy is so storied by this point, right? He's already been in Dr. Strangelove and Patton. Other other movies that people probably, some people may know him from around this time is Anatomy of a Murder and The Hospital. And he still has ahead of him The Changeling and The Exorcist 3, which, you know, we love, but maybe not mm-hmm. one of his best known films. But yeah, what do you think about him in this role? Look, it sort of speaks to the weird tone of this movie that, like, mm-hmm. he just feels kind of miscast. I don't buy him as a scientist. Yeah, I agree. And I think, again, if you were doing a more comedic, satirical film... And you were playing up the fact that, like, he's kind of miscast, it would maybe work. Like, I don't know who I would necessarily cast in this role. But, like, Richard Dreyfus, kind of, like, he's believable mm. as the sort of, like, nerdy scientist who's, like, awkward. But, like... And it's, then, of course, like, you, you know, you think of, like, Dr. Ian Malcolm in yes. Jurassic Park. I mean, I was... De- my I instantly went to Jurassic Park of, like... Yeah, like... Any, you know, any of those three actors in the core, three adults in that movie... They just do such a good job of getting at the sense of awe and wonder and love yeah. for the animals that, like, should be coming through. Like, if you want to do this version of this movie where it's really about the connection between humans and dolphins, I think you need an actor that's going to sell that a little better. And George C. Scott doesn't quite do it. Yeah, he's just he doesn't have a he, there's no warmth to him no way like i don't know like a dustin hoffman even would maybe i mean obviously he was in the graduate so like yeah nichols connection but like it's tough it's a tough role yeah because they don't know what they want him to to be or do right so like i think that's definitely and i do feel like the idea is like okay well let's get screen legend george c scott like he can ground this movie yeah because Um, there aren't a lot of other names i mean that's part of it too no so like no i mean he is arguably the i mean paul sorvino is becomes a name but yeah but not yet he's not not at this point so yeah like this is the one name in you know above the title name in this movie right like yeah 
So I agree. I don't think he's really doing it for me. But someone who is, is Paul Sorvino. I think he's killing it in this movie. Interesting. Because again, that character for me is so confusing because I don't understand his motivations. And like, it's unclear. That's the thing that, that's what I like about him. So like, Paul Sorvino plays this character called Curtis Mahoney, who at the very least. Great, great name. For sure. He claims to be a journalist. And immediately, right off the bat, you find out that he's sort of underhanded in some way. At the very least, he's willing to kind of play dirty to get what he wants. You can never figure out whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. And I think by the end of the movie, you're kind of like, well, he's a kind of like ends justify the means good guy, right? Like he's on their side, but he'll do anything and he doesn't really care about other people. I think Paul Sorvino plays that role so well of being like, you can't pin him down like like yeah. what and he's a little bit menacing there's that great shot in the opening where you have george c scott he's giving the speech to the camera and then it, yeah, it sort this, of zooms this out it's great and and what yeah. you see is like he's giving the speech to for whatever reason an audience of all women <laughs> it's kind of unexplained that's just what's happening but there's a moment where it kind of like zooms in on the audience and one of the women sort of moves their head and you see paul's sorvino is sitting in the audience behind her and it's yeah. this and you'd see it's him great, already it's a great it's yeah. a great moment it's a great moment and you've already seen him in some of that slow motion footage he's watching the dolphin with some other people and so it's like right. you kind of know this person's important you've seen him before and then you see him sitting in the audience and he stands out like a sore thumb of course because he's the only man in the audience and that sort of reveal moment is kind of weirdly ominous you don't really know what's going on and so I feel like they play that character quite well. And I think he's perfectly cast in that role of being kind of a bit of an asshole, but also mm-hmm. like maybe he has the right intentions. I, I, I think he is the strongest performance easily in this film because he doesn't have a lot of competition. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the dolphins give him a run for it. No, I think my issues with him is more just the character as written because it's never clear to me what his deal was like was he a government agent was he a double agent was he a journalist was it like that was never made clear to me but i do agree like given the limited writing he was given he plays the role well and like he becomes famous for playing these sort of like hard-edged you know gangster types or or whatever but like you know you're never quite sure where his loyalties will lie or whatever like he is a great character actor totally Um, and I mean, he's got I, a great face. Yeah, I always just think of him as from his role in Goodfellas, basically. See, I always think of him in Romeo and Juliet. That's what mm. that's the movie I always associate him with. Sure. And then also being Pacino's boss in Cruising, which is yeah. a movie that weirdly I am very, very fond of. So so um, am I. We but I think we both love that movie. Yeah. Very again, very underrated. It's like a movie that barely exists these days, I think, but it's a great movie. But yeah, I always think of him in Goodfellas because I think that was my first introduction to him. And I feel like those are the roles right. that he's most known for is the kind of like, yeah, mobster. And actually totally. when he's a little bit older, because he's young in this movie, you know? Well, yeah, to the point where I was like, I instantly recognized the face. But then I was like, why do I know that face? Like I had to instantly look it up because I was like, I know I know this actor. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw that it was Paul Servino, I was like, oh, well, that's why. Because like I know him. 30 years later when he's playing yeah. the, the old guy and slicing the garlic in, in Goodfellas. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. exactly. Okay, Trish Vanderveer. She plays Jake Terrell's girlfriend, wife, partner. 
Maggie Terrell. I mean, I gotta say, like, her performance for me is like water off a duck's back. Water off a dolphin's back. <laughs> I just, there, I not a lot there. But again, I don't think that's necessarily her fault. I just think the character barely no. exists. She just is yeah. there to support her husband. I mean, I don't know. But what did you think? Completely unmemorable. But again, I like no disrespect to her. I think it's just like underwritten. Most of the characters in this, honestly, like there's Servino, there's George C. Scott. There's obviously the Dolphins, who I yeah. think give the best performance in the film. Uh, and then there's sort of like a bunch of other faceless yeah. enemy. Or, yeah, like terrorists. And then sort of the. The guy who is funding the project, but also yeah. is apparently one of the terrorists. Yeah, who... so, yes, there's like there's like a cadre of, like, the foundation people, right, that are yeah. funding the research that are all just, like, old white dudes. And then there's, like, the grad students. And mm-hmm. they're, <laughs> they have so little to do in this. There, some good mustaches though. Some, some good, good like 1970s facial yes. hair in this the, movie. The scene the scene with the five old dudes from the foundation that are coming to see <laughs> the dolphin is pretty good and and there's a shot of yeah. them all kind of sitting on these folding chairs in a row that is to me feels yeah. very Mike Nichols and they kind of like are asking these dumb questions and trying to talk to the dolphins and like pontificating and I thought that was pretty funny, and that to me that did feel like the graduate. These, right. you know, out of touch, rich assholes. I don't know, scrutinizing the scientist and his work, basically. But yeah, it's like I don't know any of their names. You know, they, they no, of course not. They have like a handful of lines in this, and very little characterization. Okay, but I've jokingly said this multiple times, but I do actually genuinely mean it that the best performances are from the dolphins. All right, let's hear it. No, it's not good. Fish, Palmer fish. Let's talk about the dolphins a little bit, because, like, I mean, the reality is, I, you know, you talk about how you're a big fan of, like, animals on film, and obviously there's some morality questions when it comes to having yeah. animals on screen, and, like, obviously there are systems in place to ensure the humane treatment of animals, and there are some... Very, very famous films that are very, very controversial for their treatment of animals. Apocalypse Now comes to mind. Um, But the dolphins in this film talk. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe this says a lot about me, but I was not entirely sure whether or not that was real. (laughs) But see, that's the thing, is that, like, it sounds pretty believable number one it really does like yeah. okay i that i was really afraid that you were gonna laugh and, no. and make fun nope. of me and be like you're an idiot like no, no. i i i was like i'm assuming that they can't actually talk yeah but like the way the mouth is opening and yeah. cl- like it's believable it's the, i would say it is the best effect in the movie is the talking dolphins totally i would and agree i don't with know that. how they did it and oh, i can tell you <laughs> Okay, so, well, because this was so this was Buck Henry's argument was he was like, look, if we do the like, you know, they're talking like French intellectuals, it's not going to work. Right. And, and and people are, of course, not going to believe that. Right. It's very clearly a joke. He wanted to do something that people would believe. And I think that they really found this weird sort of middle ground where it for a second you're like, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a dolphin talking. Yeah, it really does. So the crazy thing about this is that 
That is Buck Henry's voice. Oh, he did. The, he stood in for the Dolphins on set when the actors had to be acting and they decided like, yeah, Buck Henry should voice the Dolphins. So, he, wow. so, so he voices the Dolphins and then they added dolphin sounds and mechanical sounds over top of that to make it sound right. more like an animal. But like, right, it's it's convincing. And again, like, look, if I was a kid when I saw this, absolutely would have thought that was real. Right, and yeah. you'd be like yeah. asking I mean, your parents, I was like, it was "Can dolphins be... talk?" You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, like, again, is believable because we've been told that dolphins are like the smartest mammal next to humans or whatever. Like, dolphins are fascinating. I've never, I've never like swam with dolphins or anything, but you know, I, my wife has been to places where you can do that, and like, she thinks dolphins are incredible, and she's like, "I got to, I pet a dolphin, and it was like life changing." And I've heard yeah. multiple people say that, but like. When you meet a dolphin in real life, like there's this incredible connection and they are brilliant and and all this stuff. So, yeah, there was a part of me that was like, OK, either they got Frank Welker in, like the famous yeah. animal voice actor guy who does everything. Well, who did the um, dolphins or, on the Simpsons episode? Yes, yes, exactly. And and also, weirdly, I'm pretty sure plays Fred on Scooby-Doo. Like the one yeah. human voice he does is Fred from Scooby-Doo. So I was like, either it's going to be like Fred Welker or they actually train dolphins to do this. And I was like, for me, it's 50-50. Like yeah. I would believe either way. But the fact that it's actually screenwriter Buck Henry is, uh, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, again, I don't have a lot of good things to say about this movie, but that sound design, whatever you want to call it, that is one of the strongest elements of the film. And again, the training and all of the stuff that they have the dolphins do is impressive. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, like it, if anything, it sort of just mm-hmm. emphasizes the sort of sheer intelligence of these creatures and makes you sort yeah. of appreciate that they probably shouldn't be kept in captivity because they are yeah. highly intelligent beings. Yeah. I mean, like there are, you know, again, like I think that there is actually upon watching this a second time, the filmmaking is not flashy, but there is some stuff mm. in this movie that, like, if you watch it carefully, you're like, oh, that was a really long shot. And, like, they did some right. really crazy stuff in that shot. Like, you know, for example, at the end of the movie, spoilers, the dolphins are captured by these terrorists to blow up the president of the United States. Oh, and so uh, and they blow up the bad guys instead. But the yeah. shot wherein that happens, right? You start underwater and you watch the dolphins like go over under the mm-hmm. boat and you hear this sort of thunk as the mine connects to the bottom of the yeah. boat. The camera then comes out of the water. It booms up the side of the boat to the window and you see the men yeah. inside and they like kind of realize that they hear this sound and then they like, well, blow up. Yeah. And it's like, but like that's all in one shot. So it's like as much as yeah, there are huge flaws with this film. There were moments like that where it's like that probably was really hard to do because you had to train the dolphins to do that and then capture it on film and then continue the story through the rest of that shot. And that's not the only instance of that. So, like, I agree. I mean, I think the dolphins are are probably the best part of this movie and the way that they kind of they shoot them and and cut them and bring it into interaction with the humans, I think, is pretty impressive in some moments. But I did want to say. You know, again, we talked about kind of how ridiculous the plot of this is. But to your point about, like, how insane dolphins are, I kind of fell down a rabbit hole of uh, all of the different ways that we've interacted with dolphins. So I just want to, like, give a little context okay. for this movie. So 
Okay. The first trained dolphin by humans only was sort of announced to the world in 1951. Oh, wow. So it was fairly recent uh, in, in relation to this movie. And right. in 1958, the, the scientist named John C. Lilly left his job at NIM, which is, you know, you know, the movie, uh, the what is it? The story of NIM? Yeah, or whatever, what is uh, it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secret Life of NIM or something. S- like the that, Secret yeah. of NIM. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Anyway. Some, something like that. But I know. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So that that NIM uh, is like the National Institute for Mental Health, something like that. Uh, and the oh, okay. movie is actually about that, weirdly. But he used to work okay. there and he left that job to study dolphins full time. And this guy's research ends up being the inspiration for the book, Un Animal Due de Raison. Right, 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 right. And so basically he was studying human dolphin communication. He wanted to figure mm. out if humans and dolphins could communicate with one another and, you know, tried all these like really outlandish experiments like like literally flooding a laboratory and having a human live with dolphins, like that kind of stuff. Um, Jeez. And never cracked the code in terms of like, you know, getting humans and dolphins to be able to communicate with one another. But like a lot of our understanding of like how dolphin brains work, how dolphin communication works comes from this guy's research. Other fun facts about this guy. He also invented the sensory deprivation tank. Which immediately made me think of the Simpsons episode, uh, Make Room for Lisa, where Homer and Lisa both get into the sensory deprivation tank and... It blocks out all the external distractions that bombard our souls. Can you pee in it? I'll take two hours. Me too. Another kind of like later in our uh, era episode that's fantastic. And she imagines herself as Homer and is able to empathize with him. This tank is releasing the full potential of my brain. Oh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ding, ding, walla, walla, bing, bing. He also, ex- of course, experimented with LSD because, you know, uh, any uh, scientist of yep. this type at that time would have done that. And eventually he kind of like went off the deep end and came to believe in something called the Earth Coincidence Control Office. Um, okay. Which is kind of a weird conspiracy thing and is the namesake of the video game Echo the Dolphin. ECCO. Oh, okay. Oh, so that, okay. yes. So also kind of inspired by John C. Lilly and all of that. So that's 1958 when he starts his research. 1960, the United States Navy Marine Mammal Program is founded. And that is a Navy program to train dolphins to do military tasks. uh, That (laughs) still exists. This is a legitimate thing that, okay. It actually exists. They detect mines. They detect and pin enemy divers that kind of stuff. Okay. So like this, yeah. this, tra- this kind of training actually exists. And again, this is 1960. So this is all before this movie comes out all before the book comes out. 1963 sea life park opens, which is the first Marine mammal park, which again, very controversial in terms of all of that flipper, the movie flipper, uh, yeah. comes out in 1963 and okay. was literally yeah, yeah, yeah. basically like, what if Lassie, but dolphins, <laughs> and um does super super well so like that's kind of the beginning of dolphins on film because again you couldn't really do it until they were trainable that's when you start getting more and more movies about dolphins about orcas about all that stuff eventually you get jaws two years after this movie comes out in 1975 Mm -hmm. but the crazy thing that I, i did want to bring up is that like all of this stuff with the dolphins in the military still going on today 
They were used in the Vietnam War, often to defend bases on the water that could be attacked by enemy divers and mines and things like that. And believe it or not, they're currently being used in the war in Ukraine. Like the Ukraine had trained a bunch of dolphins for these purposes. And when Russia captured Crimea in 2014, they took the Ukrainian dolphins and are now using them as late as last year. How crazy is that? That's that is wild. Oh, and then the other crazy thing, of course, is that like we've continued research on communicating with dolphins and are getting closer than ever. They're not going to speak English, but we're probably going to learn to speak dolphin. Like we already can whistle to them and that sort of thing to actually like train them. And we're starting to understand their language at at, like a pretty basic level. So crazy. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So I just had to take that aside to just be like, again, this movie sounds completely bonkers. But actually, like, it was weirdly kind of prescient. But yeah, I mean, like, were you able to follow the plot? I mean, other than the broad strokes of it? Well, I mean, I I did actually fall asleep watching this last night because I was so <laughs> tremendously, tremendously bored by this sure. movie. And, like, sure. nothing's, nothing's happening. Yeah. And it's one of those movies where it's like, the first hour kind of has nothing really to do with the last yeah. half hour. Because, again, so it's, it's two like, movies. The doll- they're setting up this whole premise of, like, the dolphins can speak English. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the last half hour is the terrorists doing their plot that does not involve the dolphins speaking English. The way I split it up ended up working out nicely because in the end it didn't really matter. It was kind of like I watched the two completely different things. Right. Um, and again, like the plot is relatively simple because it's just it's utter nonsense. Like it's bad. It's dumb. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't connect to anything. And like... At the end of the day, the dolphins thwart the terrorist plan. So it's like, we didn't need George C. Scott. Like, he doesn't save the day. Well, like, so not like, yes. I guess the premise is that, like, he trained the dolphins to be good and humane and recognize that what they were being asked to do was well, commit murder. So then they commit murder against a different group of people. But. but I think that's the thing is that, again, like this movie doesn't know what it wants to be. So it sends mixed messages. And like, I think. Right. The heart of the story is not so much about the thriller parts of it, because, again, they barely explain it. It's just like basically what you find out is that the foundation that's been funding George C. Scott's experiment wants to kill the president of the United States for some reason. Completely unexplained. You don't understand why. And so they just take the dolphin at one point. And again, you probably didn't catch this. One of the grad students actually turns on him. And is mm. one of the people training the dolphins on the boat of the bad guys. Okay, that, yeah, I guess. But that, again, they're all unnamed, so you can't keep track of any of this. It's, yeah. like, it's like you don't even know who that person is. So, like, of course you don't notice yeah. this. Anyway. They so all that, look like shirtless 70s yeah, mustaches. Like young, men. hot people, yeah. for the most part. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the idea is that, like, yes, he's teaching them English, but he's also training them to do other things. So that's why they're well-suited for this. And then the dolphins blow them up. But the thing that happens at the end of the movie is basically like Paul Servino's like, look, they're coming for you anyway. You're dead, basically. It's a tragedy. George C. Scott trains these dolphins. He's an optimist. He wants to forge interspecies connection. But what happens is he doesn't really want to understand politics and money. He's a scientist. He's just he And just he says as much in that opening sequence when exactly. like the women are sort of questioning his Motives. motivations or whatever and he yeah. and he's like 
Oh, I don't care about politics. Like, yeah. I, I, that's leave that up to yeah, the I don't know any military like, I'm people. Just, I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm just a scientist. Yeah, and so that ends up being his downfall, that, like, he refuses to engage with it, and yet he's funded by these these shady people. And so they just come and take what they want and do what they want to do with it. And at the end of the day, he has to give up the dolphins, right? Right. And that's really like his love and passion is this connection. And he has to turn his back on them and tell them to like go swim off into the ocean and be alone and not be around them and not trust humans, which is like the greatest betrayal of everything he believes in. Men are bad. Men will hurt ma. Men hurt pa. Hurt pa. Yes. Pa go now. Men not hurt pa. Men hurt pa. Yes. And at the end of the movie, it's like him and his girlfriend or wife sitting on the beach, probably waiting to be murdered, presumably (laughs) by the foundation people who are like, you can see the plane coming and all of that. So it's like, it's a really dark ending, but again, because you don't track the story really, and you're not sure whether you're supposed to care about the conspiracy. Yeah. The the emotional part of it just gets kind of lost. But like, I think that's what they're trying to do is make it about, you know, this guy's love for dolphins and his passion and the way he screws it up and the tragedy of that. Yeah. I don't know. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah. It makes sense. It's just, it doesn't succeed at it. No. Ultimately. No, it doesn't. The crux of it. Like this movie does not succeed at what it sets out. You know, we, I've said like, it does what it says on the tin. This does not, you know, the premise of that poster is, pretty good and the poster if you haven't seen it like the poster is pretty again it looks exciting george c scott wearing underwater goggles like it kind of has that james bond sort of thunderball vibe totally like you think this is going to be like a really exciting underwater dolphin related thriller yeah and there's no sense of excitement there's no sense of tension at any point really Like, they telegraphed the kind of big... Like, I literally said out loud, I was like, oh, let me guess, the dolphins are going to put the bomb on the bad guy's boat. Yeah. And then, sure enough, that's exactly... Like, it's just... And maybe, again, like, it's cynical, and it's the... We're watching this 50 years later, and... and, Well, I can't really say that (laughs) this premise has been done subsequently, but better, (laughs) but... um, Yeah. This movie is bananas, but not in a... um, it's just not bananas that, that it exists, like, but not bananas while you're watching it. While you're watching it, you're yeah, like, it's, I don't know. <laughs> what what, yeah, what, it's what just, happened? It's, it's not, it's, you know, I have a lot of love for the So Bad It's Good movie, mm-hmm. but this is just So Bad It's Bad. I don't even know if it's self-aware that it's bad, or, I mean, I, it sounds like Mike Nichols kind of realized halfway through I, gotten in too deep. And Yeah, I mean, the, I think this movie and the story of this movie is kind of sad, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like it's about people that are like locked into contracts and having midlife crises and were alcoholics and like, you know, or barely survived a storm at sea. Like, it's just not fun. And um, and I think that comes across. Yeah, this is like I said, it was an hour and 46 minutes and it felt like four and a half hours long. This is the (laughs) slowest moving hour and 46 minutes I think I've ever experienced in recent memory it was painful to get through and i genuinely do think that this is the worst movie we have covered there have been movies that i haven't really enjoyed in this series but that like 
I can come away from them with like, at least I've checked it off the, you know, like Planet of the Apes. At least now I can say I've seen it. And I think there's some like decent filmmaking going on. And like this, the makeup effects are really good or like Nanny mm-hmm. Professor. It's like, okay, well now I know the Jerry Lewis thing. Like I kind of, but like, I'm not coming away from this being like, well, great. Now I finally see Day of the Dolphin. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, what what I'll say is that it really just comes back to the way the whole thing hangs together. The bigger picture. That part just does not work. And so it doesn't work as a movie. But like there are elements of it for me that do work. There are a couple of scenes, for example, where you just get like George C. Scott. Like, I think it's when he's first trying to teach the dolphin how to speak English. <laughs> and... It's like nighttime and he's like looking into the pool and you get the reflections up on his face and stuff like that. A lot of the weather effects in this like really Mm -hmm. just adds so much atmosphere. There's a few scenes in the rain throughout the movie. There's this kind of cycle of day and night that keeps happening where the daytime's kind of like, you know, they're on this beautiful tropical island and you get to kind of experience that. And there's the blue water and the dolphins and all that, the greenery. And then at night it gets very spooky and atmospheric. And you get these like yeah. almost like horror moments, like the scene where, yeah, the light turns on and the, there's, there's someone dead in the tank, right? <laughs> Floating behind yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. characters. Like yeah. that, there's stuff like that in this movie that I think are great. There are a lot of really, really long takes where the camera's doing pretty elaborate moves and the blocking of the characters is really complex. But like all of that is what you'd expect from a Mike Nichols movie of this era. And so there's moments of that, but overall totally agree that... It's just not fun to watch. And I do think that sort of tone, that vibe of the shoot and everyone's situation in this movie comes through. It just doesn't feel great. Well, I'm going to ask, but I can't imagine that there are because this is a tremendously humorless film. But were there any moments for you that felt like Simpsons jokes or? (laughs) I mean, like you said earlier, the opportunity to watch um, a, a, an actor of the stature of George C. Scott <laughs> try to speak seriously to dolphins as though they're humans is pretty yeah. Simpsons-y. Um, you know, again, I think we already made this joke, but it's like the film festival episode where, you know, like man gets hit in groin <laughs> with football and it's George C. Scott, right? Um, ah, my groin! Oh, my groin! Ah, my groin! Yeah, I mean, like, it's like that. Like, it's just crazy that yeah. this... You know, again, and this is just a couple years after Patton. The comedic juxtaposition of screen legend George C. Scott, who very much is like a heavy. He does not strike me as a kind of jovial, no. joking type of man. He seems very serious yes. and that he will fly off the handle at any at, at a moment's notice. Totally. Um, I mean, like Buck Henry told, tells a story about being on the set of this movie where I, I want to say that George C. Scott had his dog on set. And the dog was kind of acting up and he and he yelled all of a sudden, sit. And literally everyone on set sat down. (laughs) Right. It's like that's George C. Scott. He has a huge presence, a little bit volatile. And yeah, not not someone who like (laughs) talks to cuddly animals. And that's why he's so good in The Exorcist 3. Yeah, he's perfect in that. He's perfect um, in that movie. Was there anything else, though? Yeah, I feel like the uh, the other thing was just like, you know, these like cigar chomping business people, right? Mm, these like old yeah. white dudes that that are are like, they just the way they act in, in some of the scenes is 
so funny because they're so wealthy and out of touch that it, it starts to get into that yeah. sort of Mr. Burns territory or like, you know, the wealthy Texan or like any of those sort of yeah. like rich people stereotypes. So like that was the other thing. But yeah, other than that, nothing else really comes to mind. Uh, yeah, for me, it was that early scene where Paul Sorvino shows up to speak to the owner of the foundation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's a he's weird, like his costume is very just like very 70s, but he speaks kind of like I, I and I can't remember the exact episode that it is. But there's the episode where the Simpsons, I think, like the premises, they have to stay in their um, in like a great aunt's house and they'll win a million. It's like the classic house on Haunted Hill. Right. Premise. But there's like the lawyer and he has this like way of speak. I can't even do an impression of it, but like he's like a menacing lawyer, but he <laughs> speaks with this kind of funny, affected quasi British accent. It's sort of like that. Uh, what is it called? Like the North Atlantic. Oh, yeah. Um, Mid Atlantic. Fraser voice. Mid Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically like Fraser. The only stipulation is that you spend one night in a haunted house. Oh, isn't that somewhat unusual? No, it's a standard clause. And the foundation owner kind of sounded like him. And I was like, oh, it kind of reminds me of that character. Uh, But yeah, otherwise, if this had been more of a comedy, they could have played the final when the dolphins ultimately put the bomb on the bad guy's boat and then the boat explodes. Like you could have cut that sequence in a way that would have played out more like a joke. Whereas in this, it's it's not really done that way. But that is feels like a classic sort of like, oh, like you know, the, well, we do, we do ow, get, and then, we do get the when that that shot I was describing. You go up the yeah. side of the boat, and then you see the guys. They're kind of like, oh, "What was going on?" And then eventually, one of them does realize what's going on, and he goes, "Oh shit!" And then they explode, yeah. which is now yeah, like exactly. I, that exact sequence is like something that you still see in action movies. I think today, oh, you see it all the time. But again, time. it's it's played more but as not a, a gag, whereas here. Yeah. No, it's not. No, but I, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it is the one of the few sort of moments of quasi humor. It was an opportunity to to have a Simpsons moment that a missed opportunity perhaps. So, okay. I did sort of allude to this earlier. I cannot fathom that this movie did well because (laughs) it's a absolute steaming heap of shit, but, uh, am I correct that it did not do well? Or are you about to blow my mind and tell me that, like, best little whorehouse in Texas, it was, like, the highest grossing film of 1973? No, no. no. It it did miserably. It did very, very poorly. It was funny, like, when I was listening to the commentary again with these film historians, one of the guys saw it when he was young and really loved it. They, like, found the one guy. And and he was like, "I, I don't really understand why people say this was bad or like it's not a success i mean like i think it's misunderstood and i was like you know after looking up the box office i'm like um no it's pretty clear cut why people thought it wasn't successful the movie cost 8.1 million dollars and made 2.3 million dollars yeah yeah so it it like it lost most of its budget so like that is really rough that's yeah, that's bad. Really rough. And just by comparison, I mean, this isn't totally a fair comparison, but Jaws cost $7 million, so a full million dollars less than this movie, and it grossed $260 million just in its initial release. Oh, my God. 
So, you know, it's a blockbuster. It's, 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 you know, of course, the the whole story around Jaws, but like, it just didn't do well. I mean, it it didn't make back its budget. It didn't even come close to making back its budget. So yeah, not a success. Didn't get a lot of awards nominations. It was a nominee at the Academy Awards for sound and music, which again, if it makes sense, if you're going to get nominated for something for this movie, like both of those things are the high points. And yeah, the critics pretty much universally ate this alive. I love oh, good. So I'm in good company is what you're telling me. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I love this one from Pauline Kale. And and I think mm. she's dead on. The most expensive Rin Tin Tin mo- picture ever made. <laughs> the movie makers who put out the Rin Tin Tin pictures didn't take themselves so seriously that they felt the need to break kids' hearts. This movie sends kids out destroyed. It's preposterously ill-conceived. <laughs> that last Damn. line is just mm, chef's kiss. Solid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, though, Pauline Kael also didn't like Mike Nichols very much. She was even kind of like lukewarm on The Graduate. She liked parts of it, but also felt that it was like pandering to the youth culture. So, you know, she's she's a pretty conservative critic. Yeah. And 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 queen of the hot takes, like some of the hottest takes you'll hear are Pauline Kael's. So on a similar note, we got Vincent Canby from The Times, who says working sometimes desperately in several genres (laughs) There, uh, that are not their own, Mr. Nichols, one of America's most elegant directors of high comedy and low, and Buck Henry, his screenwriter, whose gift is for tumultuous satire, have made a flipper film for adults, a day of the jackal for kids, and a lassie film for scuba divers of all kinds. Some of the cloak and dagger stuff that follows is so awkwardly staged that it's difficult to know whether the simplicity was designed for youngsters or as parody. <laughs> I couldn't resist because these are all so juicy. Uh, One more from Roger Ebert. The same material might have been more interesting in the hands of a less ambitious director, to your point, who could have gone for suspense, action, or laughs. Instead, Nichols gives us a vast gray moral middle ground on which the various U.S. intelligence agencies vaguely clash. That's about right. Um, Again, it's like there's a much simpler version of this movie that could have just been entertaining and it's not it's just very muddled to that commentator the commentary reviewer whatever you want to call him his point of like i don't see what the big fuss is it's not a bad movie if this was like a sunday afternoon made for tv movie or even like a movie just made by like a lesser filmmaker yeah you probably would be like yeah it's fine like it's whatever it's the fact that it is buck henry and mike nichols that you're like well, this should be way better than it is because yeah. like, we know what they're capable of doing. It's funny. I saw the new Fincher movie, The Killer, uh-huh. um, which I was kind of lukewarm on it, to be honest. It was, you know, Fincher's one of my guys. Love his stuff. Films are in my top five of all time. And so I was super stoked to go see it. And and I saw it in the theater. I was very lucky that I had the option to see that in a theater. And I just kind of came out and was like, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's pretty it's fine. Like, it's not great. It's not at the top of his list. It's not the worst movie he's ever made, but like, it's nothing to write home about. And I was talking about it with a coworker and he said, yeah, you know, if it was made by any other filmmaker, I'd probably be like, that was a really good thriller. But the fact that it's David Fincher, I'm grading it on a curve. Yeah. And it, by David Fincher level, it's not very good. And this kind of feels like that in the sense that like, if it were just made by some random 1970s filmmaker I'd never heard of, I'm not saying that it would be like the movie would necessarily be better, 
But at the very least, I wouldn't be going into it expecting more. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a victim of expectations, both both in terms of the Mike Nichols of it all and also just like the what what is this? Who is this for? Like, you know, almost no matter what angle you come into this movie with, you're going to be disappointed because it's yeah. not really much of a thriller. It's not really for young people. <laughs> it could have a lot more fun in it if, if you were making it for like children. So I think that that really is what kills it at the end of the day. So, I mean, I guess on that, would you recommend this, Adam? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, like I said, I this is without question the worst thing that you've subjected me to on this series. <laughs> I'm sorry that you paid money to see this. I'm sorry to any of our listeners who may have paid money to watch this movie. I like demand a refund if you can. I don't know if Amazon accepts this movie with shit as a reason to return your Blu-ray, but um, no, it's terrible. Like there's some decent moments in it, but not enough to justify having to sit through what realistically like, you know, me, I'd like movies to be tight and short and like an hour and 46 minutes. Any other movie I'd be like, bravo like you kept it under yeah. two hours but jesus christ this movie felt long yeah. so it's a slog even at an hour and 46 minutes so yeah no no don't don't watch <laughs> oh my god yeah. what about you i mean you usually if i hate it you can usually find enough to justify it but i mean i, I can't I, you're I, not gonna i don't know if i would recommend that anyone just go and watch this movie like you said i mean i tend to be charitable i think in in my in my recommendations i personally think that paint your wagon is so bad it's good and like i would recommend seeing yeah. that just because it's it is bananas and feels bananas I while you're gladly, watching it. if the option were to watch this again or paint your wagon yeah. i think i would pick paint your wagon yeah for sure and i really didn't like that movie either, i know but, but like but it does have it has musical numbers insane sets wild performances thruple yeah, it has a weird plot. It, I mean, it's great. It has a lot of weirdness to it that is fun. Um, this, it uh, feels Simpsony at least. So all that to say, like, I don't, I don't think I would recommend this for the vast majority of people. I think the only people that I would say maybe it would be interesting is like people who are really serious about Mike Nichols and particularly yeah. like you know, again, there are only a few movies at the beginning of his career that have that kind of feel to them, the graduate sort of tone and style and everything. And this does have that. So like, if you're a student of his sort of like way of making films, this does have that. It's just that like, it it lacks content. (laughs) Like, like the characters are poorly developed. The plots poorly developed the genre or the sort of like the premise is poorly developed. And so like that makes it very hard to tolerate, but there's, craft without content here i guess you know like you're saying there's yeah. cinematography there's editing there are sequences that are very interesting the the score i think is excellent and like the, the special effects are interesting but it just doesn't hang together and it's literally hard to watch again both of us our attention just like slipped off of this movie while we were watching oh. it so it's the kind of movie yeah. that it would not that it would ever be included but had it been included in one of those afi specials where they just sort of show like the three best sequences or like iconic scenes that'd be perfect you could watch that and be like cool i'm done like now i've seen it i've seen everything i need to see i do not need to see this movie yeah this is the sizzle reel of this movie actually would be quite impressive (laughs) weirdly yeah yeah, Uh, exactly 
Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We're not going to do a double feature of this movie with anything because, <laughs> because we're probably never going to watch it again. But if you were going to watch a, a different movie that's got some similar vibes or themes or something like that, what would you recommend for extra credit, Adam? I don't know. Like, you could watch Flipper. Have I guess, you seen the original Dolphin Flipper? movie? No, of course not. But, like, it's a dolphin movie. <laughs> the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie has a good dolphin sequence at the, oh, at the opening. That's true. That's um, fine. There's that movie Andre. Do you remember Andre? There's no. about a seal, but okay. it's got the girl from Napoleon Dynamite when she was like a child actress and huh. she like has a pet seal. Okay. Um, yeah, literally any movie other than this would be, <laughs> would be, um, I, I, I honestly, I can't like it's maybe so Day hard. of the Jackal just because the name is similar. Like, well, it's also I, got a presidential I, I, assassination. If you want the yeah. thriller version of this without the dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Then, then, Although I've I seen mean, Day of the know. Jackal and I remember it feeling pretty slow and it doesn't sluggish. Do it for me. But yeah, um, there is a I don't know. Have you ever seen the remake? I think it's just called The Jackal and it's with Richard mm. Gere and Bruce Willis. I haven't seen I was, that. Remember, remember, we talked about how when we got our first DVD player, it came with like a bunch of random DVDs. Right. That was one of them. Okay. And my dad was like, oh, yeah, Day of the Jackal's a great movie. And I'm like, well, but this is not that. And he's like, nah, it's a remake, but I'm sure it's good. This is back in the 90s when they were like remaking everything from the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, to, to that point, you could watch um, the Italian Job remake. That movie's good. Uh, what else? <laughs> we mentioned Sleepy Hollow. That's good. Three, that's now you're just good. naming good like uh, movies you like. <laughs> yeah, Twelve Angry Men. Uh, George yeah. C. Scott's in the remake of that, but it's got Lee J. Cobb in the original. Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying to think of better okay. ways to spend an hour and forty six minutes. <laughs> All right, I have a real okay. one that like I think a legitimate. Maybe... I, I had trouble with this too, to be honest. Like, it is so specific, and there are very, very few movies that kind of bring together this combination of elements of like, it's a thriller, but it's about animals and all that kind of thing. I would recommend Babe as a comp. Oh. And part of it is that like, Babe is actually like one of my all time favorite movies. I love that movie. I think it's so unique in its sort of tone and everything. But it's another movie that is about the relationship between humans and animals and the sort of yep. unique connection between a pig in that case and this farmer who is also actually kind of like a, you know, a very masculine man. He's not soft and, and fuzzy, warm and fuzzy. He's, you know, mm -hmm. can barely express his feelings, right? And yet it does such a better job <laughs> of really selling that premise and also deals with some pretty dark stuff. Like, there's a lot of yep. death in that movie. There's a lot of danger in that movie of, like, what's going to happen to these animal, all your animal friends. So, like, I, I think it does, it weirdly fits into the same sort of tone. Like, compared to other animal movies, again, I love animal movies. One of my favorite movies growing up was Homeward Bound. I would never make the comparison between this and Homeward Bound. Because Homeward Bound has all of the edges, sand it off still would probably make me cry because of the ending but like it's not about bigger things it's not about <laughs> yeah scary things in that way it's just an adventure movie with animals that talk but like babe it's weird and it's scary as well as being touching and theoretically for kids <laughs> and do you prefer the the first one to the sequel because the sequel is also very highly regarded right yes yeah so i don't remember the sequel very well you know i had a long hiatus from letterboxd 
And I actually was going back through like, oh, what did I watch back in like 2013 when I was on here the first time? <laughs> and I actually watched the sequel while I was on Letterboxd and I have absolutely no, no memory of it, but I should go back and watch it because it, like you said, it, it is well-regarded, kind of a, a, di- a weirder tone than the first one. So, I'll And that's that the one that is officially directed by George Miller as opposed to like yes. ghost directed by George Miller. So. Yes, yes, or co- whatever, co-directed or... Depending on how you look at it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The first one's a bit of a mystery, exactly, like what components are George Miller and, and uh, which ones are the other director, but... Oh, George C. Scott, George C. Ah, oh, my groin! <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with our very festive, non-denominational holiday fun fest. Uh, until then, thank you so much for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. And uh, why not check out some of the other great podcasts on the That Shelf Network, like the ContraZoom podcast or Spoiled Rotten, which I think if our timing is correct, I was just featured on an episode or will soon be featured on an episode. <laughs> and Nate had an episode mm-hmm. recently as well. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and in the meantime, Nate... We'll see you around the flex. See you around the... I can't do a dolphin noise. Damn it. Are you kidding me? Like, it's just... I, it's, I don't... I, like, I literally...